Good morning. It's a joy to be here with you and to preach God's word this morning. I do want to thank each of you for the opportunity to be here with you and to preach God's word. Uh, let me pray one more time together and just ask for God's help as we try to understand and uh, receive his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, that you've not left us to our own wisdom or ways, but instead you've spoken. And you've spoken with clarity in your word. We pray, Lord, now, even as we know that we will not understand this word that you've inspired unless you help us. And so we ask that you would do it. Would you open our minds to the truth of your word that we might understand and receive what it is you've said? We pray that we would be not only hearers, but doers also. We ask it for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever encountered anyone who knew they needed mercy? John Newton was a man who knew he needed mercy. You're probably familiar with the most popular English hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, which John Newton is most famous for writing. But did you know that he was once a slave ship captain? So when John Newton wrote of how Amazing Grace had saved a wretch like him, you know he meant it. He knew himself to be a wretch who needed mercy. But John Newton wasn't always convinced he needed mercy. No, on March 21st, 1748, John Newton had his great day of turning to the Lord, his conversion. See, his ship was overtaken by a terrible storm at sea, and for the first time, Newton uttered the words, Lord, have mercy on us. And from that day forward, John Newton was convinced he needed mercy. And Newton wasn't convinced he needed mercy only for grievous sins, like selling people as property based only on their ethnicity. But Newton was convinced he needed mercy for what some might call small sins. He often wrote in his personal letters of his sins of speech which he considered anything but small. See, as a sailor, Newton had quite a despicable pattern of speech, regularly cursing the Lord and using his name in vain. He even wrote about how he could invent curse words at the time. But everything changed when he uttered the Lord's name to ask for mercy. From then on, Newton would return to the Lord for much needed mercy every day of his life. Mercy transformed who he was as a person. And you can see this maybe most clearly because of what Newton said on his deathbed, what's now engraved on his tombstone. He said, I am a great sinner. Christ is a great savior. See, John Newton's life and letters and hymns are just a small picture of what it looks like to live knowing that you need mercy. And that's exactly what our passage is about this morning the severity of sin, 
the chastising hand of discipline, and God's very great mercy. Listen to God's word in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed over Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seeker, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the, in while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw... And he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. To summarize the passage we just heard, we might say something like this. God's mercy is very great, so repent and return to him. And that's the big idea from God's word this morning. God's mercy is very great, so repent and return to him. And in order to understand the passage, we need to get a sense of the context. You may know, First and Second Chronicles, originally written as one book, is really making one point. On the other side of exile, Israel must consider God's faithfulness in the past in order to live faithfully in the present with hope 
for the future. God will keep his promises. Though the prophetic hopes of a Messiah and a restored temple haven't yet come in the time of Chronicles, God will keep his promises. And maybe most relevant for our passages, for our passage this morning, is how Chronicles portrays David. You could turn back in your Bible just a couple of pages and look at 1 Chronicles 17, and you'd see God making a promise to David that one of his sons will rule on his throne forever. Then in the next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, we see David's military victories, one right after the other. And the chronicler is doing something really interesting here. He doesn't include certain stories which would expose David's faults. For example, the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, it's not in the book of Chronicles. In fact, the chronicler portrays David largely very positively, with only a few exceptions, one of which is in our passage this morning. See, in 1 Chronicles, in chapters 13, 15, and 21, David transgresses the Mosaic law. He inappropriately confuses the roles of king and priest. And in all three of those passages, God's anger and displeasure are provoked. So our passage, 1 Chronicles 21, it's the most final, it's, it's the most dramatic and final of those three failures of David. Now we'll take this text in three stages. First, in verses 1 to 6, we'll see mercy required. Second, in verses 7 to 13, we'll see mercy recognized. Third, in verses 14 to 17, we'll see mercy received. Again, that's mercy required, 1 to 6, mercy recognized, 7 to 13, and mercy received, 14 to 17. So point number one, mercy required. Simply put, mercy is required because David sinned. We can see that David considered himself to have sinned, even to have sinned greatly, if you just look at verses 8 and 17. But look again at verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So interestingly, Satan, in some sense, caused David to sin. But notice, David doesn't say, the devil made me do it. No, he takes personal responsibility for his sin and its consequences. So then what exactly is Satan doing here? What is Satan's role? After all, he's mentioned right off the bat in our passage in verse 1. And if you don't know, the name Satan actually only occurs three times in the entire Old Testament. It's in Job 1 and 2, Zechariah 3, and right here in 1 Chronicles 21. In the original Hebrew, the name means adversary or even accuser. So picture a courtroom scene. But you're the one in the dock. You're on trial. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. He's the one bringing charges against God's people. That's who Satan is. It's what Satan means, and so it's what Satan does. He provokes God's people to disobey God. And I think the chronicler wants us to see that after all of David's military victories in 1 Chronicles 18 to 20, there's an, a much greater, a much more dangerous enemy, a spiritual adversary, Satan himself. 
But look over at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, where we have a parallel account of this same story of David's census. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. There it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Here, 2 Samuel describes the same events as 1 Chronicles, but from a different perspective. So is this a contradiction in God's word? No, of course not. It's not as if Samuel says God did it and Chronicles says God didn't do it. No. Samuel says God did it. Chronicles says Satan did it. So it's both. That's the harmony right there. It's not at all uncommon for God, with good purposes, to intend something to happen and Satan, or evil people, to intend the exact same events with evil purposes. I mean, it happens all the time in the Bible. Just think, for example, of the story of Job, or the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. See, God is sovereign over everything, even Satan and evil. Our sovereign God is able to cause everything to occur according to his good promises, even according to his good purposes. So what does Satan incite David to do? Well, to take a census. That's what David orders Joab to do in verse 2. David says, go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan. That just means from the far south to the far north, all of it. And bring me a report that I may know their number. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a census of Israel. We see other censuses happening in, for example, Numbers chapter 1, or even later in 1 Chronicles chapter 27. But look at how Joab, the king's commander, immediately objects to the king's order. Look at verse 3. Why then should, it, should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Then later in verse 6, we're even told the command was abhorrent to Joab. And worse than that, of course, is verse 7. God was displeased with this thing. So again, it's, it's abundantly clear. David has sinned. Joab considers it abhorrent. God is displeased and angry. David even later realizes he's sinned greatly. He has great distress over this thing. But why? Why was it wrong to do this thing? Why is mercy required for this census? The text just doesn't make explicit why it was wrong. And I think that's the very point of the first six verses. Mercy is required for David and for us because God's people don't even know God's word enough to not sin against him. See, over and over again, the scriptures are clear. Just think about the words of the psalmist in that 119th Psalm, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, there's a connection in scripture between knowing God's word and knowing the Lord and not sinning against him, doing what he says. So if you want to know and please God, you must get familiar with God's word. 
But in our passage, the king's commander is more familiar with God's word than the king himself. Which, if you know anything about God's law, you know how fitting it is for the king of Israel to be the most familiar with God's word. See, the king of Israel was required to write out his own copy of the law of Moses when he took the throne, and then to devote himself to reading from it every day of his life so that he wouldn't go astray from knowing and following the Lord God. So David, of all people, would have known, should have known, he would have written out Exodus 30, verses 11 to 16. Turn there in your Bibles. Exodus 30, verses 11 to 15. Let's hear what David would have written out when he became king and what he would have committed to reading from every day of his life. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Now look at those two words in verse 12, the words number and plague. Do you see how the chronicler is clearly alluding to this Mosaic law? He uses the same words, number and plague. So it seems that Joab knew his Bible, and at least in this case, David didn't. So mercy is required, not merely because David took a census, but because David did this thing. This specific census displeased God. David took an unauthorized and unsanctioned census. He hastily looked to his own strength in the numbers of his army instead of looking to the Lord God to fight for Israel. And motivated by fear of foes like the Philistines, David hastily overlooked or disregarded God's plain and clear prescription about how a census is to be taken. So in 1 Chronicles 21, there's no mention of the census tax, which is prescribed in Exodus 30. And I think that's because David didn't take one. Thus, a plague is about to fall on Israel, and it will be a picture of the guilt of David's sin. Now, you might be hearing this and wondering, what in the world is the big deal about all of this? I mean, can't God just overlook small things like this? Is it even wrong to do a small thing like this? And if that's you, I would encourage you to consider the scriptures carefully. There are dozens of examples of things we might consider small that God takes deadly serious. Think of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, 
The text says they offered unauthorized or strange fire on the altar, and immediately fire comes out from the altar and consumes them. Or think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines, and it moves along rocky ground. It's unstable. Uzzah reaches out his hand so that the Ark won't touch the ground, and instantly he's struck dead. Or think of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about the profit they had made from selling land, and immediately they were struck dead. So if passages like those, Leviticus, 2 Samuel, Acts 5, or even if 1 Chronicles 21 surprises us, I think it's because we don't yet understand just how holy God is and how sinful we are. See, all sin is deadly serious. And that's why mercy is required for David. And brothers and sisters of Stafford Baptist Church, are we not all like David in some ways? I mean, perhaps you're not the king of a nation of God's people. But do you not sometimes overlook or disregard God's plain and clear word? Do you ever overlook what might seem small and socially acceptable, but is actually sin? For example, have you considered your speech? Do you gossip, saying something denigrating about a person when they're not around? TMZ and social media today might make this seem normal, but God considers it sin, and his word is clear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Ephesians 4.29. So let me ask you, is Stafford Baptist Church, by God's grace, a culture of speaking the truth in love to one another? May this text this morning, this sermon from this passage of God's Word, make, be a reminder to you of the covenant that you've made to each other as members of the same church about how we are to speak to one another and to speak about one another. And if the reason you need mercy isn't sins of speech, what is it for you? What might you be tempted to overlook or disregard in God's Word? That question, that would be a good way to apply this morning's sermon. Ask one of your fellow church members later this week or later today over a meal, what's the temptation for you to overlook in God's word? But maybe you're here this morning or you're listening in on the recording and you wouldn't consider yourself a, a Christian. Well, let me ask you, do you realize that you need mercy? Do you see anything in yourself that looks something like David in this passage? See, like all of us here, you have overlooked and disregarded God's word. We've all been created by a good God who wants good things for us. 
And he tells us in his word what that is, how to live for our good and for his glory. And because he's good and because he loves all that he's made, he's been plain and clear about this. But friend, you and I and everyone here have also sinned against this good God. We've traded our sinful foolishness for his better, clear wisdom. We've acted in haste with nothing but self-interest and trust in our own strength. And this manifests itself in our lives in hundreds of ways. We lie to get what we want instead of speaking the truth. We're harsh with our neighbor because we see her as an obstacle in our way rather than someone to be served. Maybe we treat our spouse worse than we might treat an enemy instead of loving him or her as God's gift to us. And on and on and on we could go. But God, even as we'll see in this passage, is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loves his people, he provides his own son to save us from our sin. God forgives sinners. That's the good news. God forgives sinners. And you, you are invited into this forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Turn from wicked ways and turn to Jesus. If you do, you'll find him to be a perfect savior, even as I trust many of us here have. So for us, like David, because of our sin, God's mercy is required. And that leads us to our next point in the text. Point number two, mercy recognized. Look again at verse eight. And notice David's distress. We just unpacked his sinful decision, but listen as he responds to God's displeasure with this thing. Verse eight, and David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant for I have acted very foolishly. Here David tells us the correct interpretation of his decision. He sinned. And not only that, but he sinned greatly. That's what it says. In fact, David tells us something of what the sin is. David says he's acted very foolishly. That is, he's made haste, overlooking and disregarding God's plain and clear word about when and how to take a census. But now, God's mercy will be recognized by David himself. Notice his remorse for his sin. He's grieved over this grievous sin against the Lord his God. Again, just stare at those words and consider them. Those two words in verse 8, greatly and very. Now, we sometimes throw words like very around when we don't mean them, but that's not the case for David here. He has very great remorse over sin, as if the words sin and iniquity and foolishly were bold on the page in front of us. David is heartbroken over sin. That's what distress is. But look at what happens next. Let's consider God's loving and chastising discipline. 
in response to David's sin. It'll serve to move David to repentance and growth in communion with the Lord his God. Look at verse 9. And the Lord spoke. God mercifully meets David's foolish sin with his wise word. God gives David what he most needs. And specifically here, God speaks through David's seer, which is essentially a kind of prophet. In this case, it's Gad, who speaks on God's behalf. And Gad gives David three choices, which you can glance at again in verses 10 through 12. Basically, God says through Gad to David, pick one. Either three years of famine, three months of foes, or three days of fatal infection and affliction. Now, you might think three days is a better punishment than three months or three years because it's shorter. But notice what might seem counterintuitive. The shorter discipline is the most severe discipline because it's the direct discipline from the hand of the Lord. See, you can plan for famine if you just store up food. You can even train for battle and build up your army if you know you have to fight your enemies. But how, how do you brace yourself for pestilence and plague, especially in a day without penicillin. So David, three years of famine, three months of foes, or three days of fatal infection and affliction, pick one. And we see David's choice in verse 13. Listen to that again. In, in a way, it's the main point of the passage this morning. Verse 13, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. In all his distress, David chose wisely. Because he knew God might still have mercy on his people. In fact, that's the very thing that's most like the Lord to do. Have mercy. See, David's God is the very one who relents from disaster. Just as Joel said... David recognized God's very great mercy, and he cast himself upon it into the hands of his God alone. And on this point of recognizing God's very great mercy, I think we have to ask ourselves, have you recognized God's mercy? Has it transformed who you are as a person? That would show up in dozens of ways in your life, but let me give at least two specifically. First, consider how you relate to God. Does your sin distress you as an offense against God? And do you recognize that his mercy is very great? Do you quickly go to him for forgiveness? A person who knows they need mercy also recognizes its true and only source. And the fact that God's mercy is very great means it never runs out. He alone can deal with our sin over and over and over and over again, time and again. We can't clean ourselves up first. So how do you relate to God? Second, consider how you relate to God's people. Can a member of your church confess grievous sin to you? A people who recognize God's very great mercy can struggle well with sin and temptation. They can confess grievous sins like sexual immorality, or racism, or any number of other wicked things. 
And a church can do this only if they've recognized God's very great mercy. Because God is so rich in mercy and grace, he redeems and restores the worst of sinners from the worst kinds of unrighteousness. And if God has received us, we must receive his people. As Christians, we all together want to recognize God's very great mercy in our own lives and to cast ourselves into his hands alone. And so now we come to our third and final point in the text, verses 14 through 17. Point number three, mercy received. We've seen how God's very great mercy is required and it's been recognized, but now let's see how it's received through repentance. Look again at verses 14 and 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. Here are the consequences for David's sin played out. The Lord strikes Israel in the form of a pestilence that kills 70,000. That's what the word fell means. It's like falling in battle. At the end of verse 14, you can see it. It means that they died by the sword of the Lord. And we need to not miss something here. Just as Joab said at the beginning, David's sin was a cause of guilt for Israel. You can glance at that again at the end of verse 3 in the text. See, David's sin had social consequences. His sin didn't only affect himself, but it affected all of the people. This is even more clear by the end of the passage, in verse 17, where David is asking God to let the guilt and punishment fall on him instead of Israel. When David sinned, all of the people of Israel had to fight through this plague, and 70,000 of them died. And it's fitting, of course, for God's covenant nation, Israel, to be represented by and in some sense affected by the evil actions of their king. But let's not miss an important implication for us. In many ways, people's individual sin often affects others. When a father sins by committing adultery, his family is deeply affected. When a ruler sins by evil dealings with other countries, the nation can be deeply affected. When a pastor sins by teaching false things about God or living hypocritically, his flock are deeply and negatively affected. And those are just a few examples. But we can see from this text and from common experience that individual sin sometimes has social or corporate consequences. And this isn't just a problem for Old Testament Israel. Think about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, where he tells the church to put the sinner out unless the little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, in our passage, David sinned and Israel was plagued. But notice the glorious next phrase where I stopped reading a moment ago in verse 15. It says, the Lord saw. What wonderfully good news that is, brothers and sisters. The Lord saw. What did God see? It's interesting, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think it's very clear implicitly from the context. God saw David's repentance. God saw David and the elders of Israel in lament over sin. You can see that in the last sentence of verse 16. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And if you don't know, the clothing and the posture here indicate corporate lament. 
Together, they are agreeing with God about the sinful foolishness of David in the form of this unauthorized census. So what did the Lord see? He saw David's repentance and the people's lament. And what does God do when his people turn from sin and trust him? He meets them with his very great mercy, and his people receive it. Specifically here, the Lord stops the angel of destruction from destroying Jerusalem. And this story becomes a great and glorious reversal because the site of David's sin is turned into the place of atonement for sin, the place where the temple will be built. That's the significance of the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. At the end of verse 15, you can see that even more clearly if you just keep reading 1 Chronicles 21, starting in verse 18, all the way to verse 1 of the next chapter. God restores the site of David's sin by reversing it into a site of sacrifice for sin. Now we need to see one more thing on this point of mercy received. What exactly provoked David's repentance? What released the floodgates of God's very great mercy? Is it not right there in verse 16? Listen. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. See, the angel of the Lord here is the magnificent and terrifying manifestation of the Lord himself. And you know if you've read much of the Bible what happens when someone catches just a glimpse of God's glorious holiness. Don't you? They fall on their face and worship him. Just think about Isaiah, who had a vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he was immediately overcome with his own filthiness. So it's seeing the holiness of God and knowing the chastising discipline of the Lord, which provokes David to remorse over sin and repentance from foolish haste and disregard for God's clear word. Because for God's people, even God's discipline conveys his mercy. God's discipline is like that of a loving father with his children. It's always redemptive and restorative, provoking sinners to repentance and growth and even deeper communion with God. So this is truly divine forbearance. It's God's very great mercy received. And that final verse of the passage this morning is where I want to conclude. Look at verse 17. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Here we see David's remorseful repentance expressed in words. He knows he's the one responsible for sin, and so he intercedes on behalf of the innocent Israelites. See, in this passage, David is both a negative and a positive example for us. We're to avoid his sinful foolishness, his haste, which sins by overlooking and disregarding God's clear word, but we're also to emulate his quickness to repent of his sin and lead the people in corporate lament for the evil. But there's something even more important, even more foundational than how we're like and not like David. 
See, if all we did was consider how to follow and not follow David, I think we'd miss the chronicler's most important point. The whole point of exposing David's failure as king of the people of Israel is to bring us back to God's promise of another king, a son of David. And this son of David is a king who never needs to repent of his own sin. This is Jesus, the one who came in David's line, the one who is David's greater son, the king who sits on David's throne. In David's attempt to be a substitute for the people of Israel in verse 17, it should make us think of this Jesus, the only one who really could substitute for sinners. See, Jesus had no sin of his own, so he wasn't trying to save innocent bystanders from the effects of his sin. Rather, unlike David, in the most important way, mercy is never required for Jesus. Though Jesus always recognized God's very great mercy, he never needed to receive that mercy for himself because Jesus lived a perfect life before God, always paying close attention to God's word, refusing to be rushed, hearing and always heeding God's clear word. And then he went to the cross to die in the place of his people who regularly disregard God's word and so need God's mercy. But not only that, Jesus also rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he is right now seated on David's throne, ruling forever. See church, Jesus is the very mercy of God. Jesus is the reason God can forgive sinners like you and me and David. Both for grievous and flagrant sins like this one, and for subtle and socially acceptable sins that we're all full of. Jesus is God's very great mercy in the flesh. And as Christians who are gathered here in Christ's name to worship God, we need God's very great mercy. And we don't just need it once when we become Christians. We need it every day, moment by moment if we are to know and please God with all of our lives. So if, like David, you've realized that mercy is required and you've recognized that God's mercy is very great, then receive God's mercy by believing in and beholding Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do just that. Father, we do thank you for your word, for how it's clear, how it speaks to us clearly about the mercy that we need. We thank you that your mercy is very great, that you give it without reservation, that you give it to us over and over again, we who so deeply need it. We thank you most of all for Jesus, who is your very great mercy, and who makes your mercy able for us to receive, who loved us and gave himself for us. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in light of your mercy, to be people who are transformed by your mercy, who know that they need it, and who regularly recognize and receive and depend upon it. Help us to behold Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.